hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the stupid answer. Uh oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Sack. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with that. Because he has a lot of chips, Bob. <laughs> Alright. Hello and welcome to episode 352 of the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I'm your host. Matthew Zachary, a proud 19-year young adult cancer survivor, broadcasting right now from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest support network for young adults affected by cancer, online at stupidcancer.org. I'm Kenny Kuhn, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners. Never miss an episode by signing up for a newsletter and subscribing to the free podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year, so got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the stupid cancer show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. This special episode of the Stupid Cancer Show is brought to you by our good friends at Seattle Genetics, improving the lives of people with cancer through innovative and empowered antibody-based therapies. We're going to talk with young adult survivors Dana Burkoff and her mom Miriam, and a uh, young adult survivor named Kathleen, with a survivor spotlight on Vinny Endress, returning champion to the Stupid Cancer Show. It's going to be a good program uh, episode. Here we go. And with that, we welcome our special ops team here. Mr. Kenny Kane. Good evening. Back in action. Where were you last week? Where was it? Oh, I had a, a pre-existing commitment. Is that like a pre-existing condition? Yeah, similar but different. <laughs> and hey, Mal. Welcome back. Hello. How you doing? Just dandy. Your your dog Facebook posts are always impressive. Yeah. it's 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 My Instagram has become my dog and my food and my dog wins all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well done. Well done. She tries really hard. I actually had someone tell me that she's the most photogenic dog anyone's ever seen. People just say that, though. You know that, right? She it's is, like when my people say, your kids are the cutest kids ever. No, they're she, not. She is really photogenic, though. Yeah. I'm going to isolate that and play that. <laughs> <laughs> Bar, bot, mitzvah. <laughs> Lovely. And uh, Noel Wimmer is back. Hello. He's uh, still Glad here a week later. That. We must have done something wrong. Yeah, it's been five days. Still employed? Yeah, still here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about uh, about you. Um, you uh, have a very eclectic background. You worked in finance for the uh, big big brother industry of uh, Skank of America. Not a sponsor. I think everybody knows that, Bank yes. of America. Yeah. We've all heard um, of them. But you... Uh, you went to Austria on a like a almost like a, a paid scholarship to get a master's or something. It's yeah. fascinating to integrate. Tell, tell, tell us about that. Yeah, I was in Vienna for a couple of years, um, doing my master's in something called Science Technology Society, and um, because of the wonders of subsidized education, um, studied not only for free but also essentially earning money too. So it was a great experience. Vienna is a beautiful city. Um, recommended. To anybody to travel there um and yeah loved it and now that i'm back i'm happy to be here so music wait the technology science technology society sts that's pretty impressive that's fairly all-encompassing it, it you can make <laughs> you, you can make it work with everything that's that, pretty that's, much everything that's the good thing about it yeah it's that broad so where does the uh so society typically doesn't 
you know, uh, want to deal with technology and, and all that stuff, but it was kind of forced upon us. What were some of the, did you have a thesis you worked on for this? Um, yeah, sure. Um, literally looking at um, sort of future studies dealing in um, online environments. So Reddit, looking at, um, there's this, uh, if anybody's familiar, um, concept of transhumanism, and there's this Russian billionaire who's basically creative, created an initiative called the 2045, 2045 initiative to um, pretty much make humans immortal by 2045. And this is cra- it's the craziest thing ever. Is it that, um, that singularity thing where the robots take it's over? It's basically singularity, and the concept is there will be avatars running around with, they'll pretty much be supercomputers with our minds transferred over to them. Interesting. Name, who wrote that book, The Singularity Guy? Mm, no idea. We'll have to look it up. To yeah. the Google! Yeah. We'll, we'll find him. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, fascinating stuff. So so yeah. blending the finances, like that's kind of like a, it's like a, that's your subreddit. Your actual Reddit is yeah. it's this anthropology. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it was, it was very interesting. I mean, social media and Reddit, which is social news media, is something that also really interests me. Interests me. I and mean, we spoke about um, some of the, the social media studies that I had done before, and that's what I wanted to kind of blend together with my my thesis work at in Vienna. Yeah, we've never really cracked Reddit from a uh, a social network program type of thing, have we? Or is it not crackable? I mean, misunderstanding its purpose. Uh, maybe a little bit of everything. Yeah. I just think we haven't, you know, there's only so many platforms you can meaningfully engage with. Yeah. And uh, I, I think, think that's been the... the fine, hit. you're in charge of Reddit now. Uh, I'm glad, <laughs> gladly. It's a, it's a tough nut to crack, but yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I feel it's one of those things that I probably could have learned more about and joined back in the day. Like, what's it like? It's like 10 years old now, right? More. Uh, yeah. Around 2005. One of the originals. Yeah. yeah. One of the really early original, like before, my, like MySpace and Reddit were like the thing with Dig. Yeah. Remember that back well, in the Dig day. Dig was even Dig was even older. Um, Slash dot, which was Slash one dot. Was, that was around forever. Um, we're so. we're digging back in the Wayback Machine here yeah. in the Internet Archive. Yeah. yeah, a great tool, by the way. Yes, the I love Wayback that. Machine. I love that. It's so embarrassing to go back and see what my, my website <laughs> looked like in 1998. Thank my, you, Wayback my, my live journal. Yes, your live journal. Friends only. Your, your GeoCities, exactly. Anyway, well, uh, we're we're thrilled to have you still here, and yeah, hopefully you'll I mean, continue to still be here. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a great week. <laughs> um, but anyway, happy Father's Day, belated by one day to all of our fathers out there. We put a nice post up on our wall, wishing, Thank you. Um, yeah, wishing everyone a happy Father's Day, honoring the fathers we have and remembering those we have lost, um, and uh, you know, especially the veterans out there who are who are fathers that you know. This is not about cancer, even it's just fathers. And being one, being kind of weird, my sixth Father's Day, for that matter, kind of strange. Um, anyway, and we, we just want to round out with a really interesting piece of news. Um, there was an article circulating through MTV about a young adult survivor named Megan Sullivan. And uh, she, you know, she took all these photos. She went to visit the seven wonders of the world, like all seven of them. But it happened to be after she was diagnosed with cancer, <laughs> survived a car crash and fell like 20 feet onto cement. Yeah, she's been through a lot but she's rather impressive she's batman yeah and then she uh what's interesting is i actually read through her blog a little bit she just up and decided she was going to go see the seven wonders of the world of the world and packed in like a small backpack right. and just went and she had like no experience right she had no experience she it, it was there's a whole thing about her getting different visas for right. different countries and you were required for to have a visa for some countries and some countries require you to get the visas three months in advance, right? And she got them in like two days. So it, right. she's very interesting. I was I couldn't help but think back to that movie with Reese Witherspoon called Wild that came out last year. Yes, yeah. Like I don't know if that's true to fact, but it, that's what came to my head. It, it's a little different, but definitely a a journey of a similar nature. Yeah, pretty uh, pretty incredible stuff. What 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 people can do in general, let alone that. Well, anyway, in, just insightful stuff uh, to kick off the show. And now it is time for our uh, our Survivor Spotlight, Vinny Andres. In our Survivor Spotlight, returning champion to the stupid cancer show, Vinny Andres, diagnosed with stage 4B Hodgkins just two weeks after his wedding. Like, this is a good time for that to happen. After experiencing back and leg pain and uh, six months out of initial treatment, uh, again, we love to have uh, success stories back on the show. Please welcome back... To the stupid cancer show, Vinny Andres. Hey, gentlemen, sir. 
we had you on the show a little over a year ago, I believe. How you how you been since then? Pretty good since then as well. Okay. Um, I think we can talk a little bit more about, you know, this whole passage through time. Does it get easier? That's the question I always ask. Like, when do you know you're alive again? When do you, you know, does it make any sense? And I typically like to joke that when you start getting angry at FedEx and the mailman, again, you try to, then you're, you're kind of like past the, the brunt of it. But where are you in this journey now? I guess uh, when you start not having to go to the doctor every couple of weeks or anything and the less trips and less medications that you're taking, it starts to seem like normal life again, I guess. And yeah, your problems start turning into stupid little stuff and, and, uh, kind of get back into the regular routine of life, I guess. What would you say have been some of the bigger challenges for you in terms of your relationships with your friends? Simple conversation gets pretty awkward with some people when you're not quite sure what they're thinking. We we and, often uh, do these uh, surveys like what's the dumbest thing someone's accidentally or unintentionally said to you? Do you have anything particularly favorite lined up when people ask you that question? Oh, uh, not really. I guess <laughs> you get a lot of questions too, where you know a lot of I mean myself included didn't really know how many different types of cancer there were and the different severities of each one and how they were all treated differently. So. You know, a lot of people, some of their questions are seem a little sillier. The uh, the one I always got was why I never lost my hair during the first treatments. And I guess I didn't have a problem with not losing it. <laughs> yeah, but that, that so, can go back to the stigma of, but you don't look sick. What's wrong with you, right? Yeah, that's pretty much what it was. Yeah, and then gain, you know, it's a baby, I didn't lose my hair, and then just gained weight, which I found out later is actually really common. So, yeah, everybody's kind of a don't look like somebody that has cancer. So, I remember the last time we talked about some fertility issues, and your story is a little convoluted and unique in that you were given an, an over-expensive price because they were factoring in like sort of the long-term and not the immediate term of just preserving fertility. Is that correct? Yeah. They had quoted you know, in vitro fertilization versus a lot of the other processes you can go through before you have to get, actually get to that stage. So, um, I mean, looking back on it now, I guess, especially with all the other resources there are out there to help you financially, I don't think there's, uh, you know, most young young males at least, I guess, and females as well, is, it's not terribly expensive to uh, just store it for now. And like I said, there's, financial resources out there to help you with the little bit of cost that you might have to pay for since a lot of companies don't cover the cost, but it's, you know, it's a lot harder to, it's hard to decide that when you're that young though. And so it's easier to do it and not regret it, I guess. No, I agree. Absolutely. And we, we've uh, had young adults on the show is uh, in like their teenage years who were given fertility options and the last thing on their mind is, what do you mean banking my sperm? Or what do you mean harvesting my ovaries? I'm 17 years old. It sort of forces a conversation you didn't ever think you were going to have, at least for that while. Um, were you uh, in a clinic that sort of understood fertility and reproductive rights? Or did you get lucky and happen to have somebody who knew to even bring that up with you? I guess maybe I got lucky they brought it up. I. I don't know what other clinics are like. It, it wasn't, it was kind of a, you know, a rush decision. It wasn't, um, wasn't all spelled out really clear and nice, but it, you know, they did bring it up and told me it was something that I needed to talk with a specialist about to decide if it was something I wanted to do before they started the treatments. So I was at least made aware of it. So I'm sure there's probably some, some people that, never even know about it unless they look it up on their own right and and of course it's always like uh you know it's the elephant in the room like you have this now that you have this bank you're spending money every year to just keep it banked at what point do you feel comfortable even deciding oh i'm ready to consider having children or will it even work or what's the costs are going to be well you know the cost because they told you the cost up front or looking into alternatives which may even be more expensive and stigmatized like adoption and surrogacy 
Yeah. Yeah, but and if they yeah the thing that I saw or now that I know is it the cost to store you know, a sperm or embryo is, is a few hundred dollars a year. And it you know, you can just store it as long as you want and then you can always get rid of it later. The cost to use it is a little, you know, is expensive, but you got time to deal with that part later. You just have to pay, you know, your annual storage and then when you decide you want to do something with it or if you decide you want to try and adopt or something else, you can always get rid of it too. It's it's uh it's kind of the you know, if you got the rush decision of you gotta start treatment really soon, well just you know, store it and figure the rest of the details out later. And especially if you're you know, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, you're probably not married and not gonna be for a little bit at least and so you you got a few years to really decide what you want to do with it, but the option's always there because for some people, especially, it's kind of a, you know, there's a big emotional thing of it being your kid versus somebody else's, and a lot of people like the adoption idea, and I did as well, but it is pretty hard, stressful, and not easy for cancer patients either until you're far enough out. So it kind of keeps your options open in a way, I guess. No, I, I agree. I can't help but uh, read here in your bio. I don't. I don't think we talked about this on the last show. Is your family runs a dairy farm, and obviously farming in America is is. I wouldn't say it's a contentious argument, but there's definitely a conversation going on around sort of. I would say almost like the militarization of 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 how Monsanto does things and uh, GMO and all these things. And, and I would love to just talk about your experience having this be in your family and what role, if any, does that play in helping you understand what do you eat, what do you recommend to other people eat, what don't you want to eat, and and is that something that you have this unique experience personally with? Yeah, it is. Uh, it's some usually an uphill battle most days um, because, the uh, like you said, Montana, they get the publicity, or which is bad publicity, but everything always ends up tied to them, and a lot of people, if you really, it's a tough argument. And, and a lot of it, what it really comes down to is, is kind of almost like the cancer thing, too, is you like, you know, people generally like things they can understand, which they all understand if you go out and you plant a seed in the ground and it grows without anything but water and sun, then that's great and simple. But then when you change it and it's not, quite normal anymore it's hard to it's really hard to try and explain that to people and how that works and and you know kind of like trying to explain to them how a cancer drug works it's it's tough and it's controversial in a way i mean there's there's only there's so much there's a lot of research out there and that's the thing is you can prove the research whichever way you want to prove your argument and it sometimes kind of hard does it really get you anywhere and the, but the uh the main issue that i see with any of it is is not that if it's organic non-gmo or anything like that is all of that except for usda organic none of those things are regulated labels and so saying all natural anything like that doesn't mean anything at all it, it's, it's all based on the honor system and that's the same thing with gmos is most of them can't be tested for anyways so you're kind of relying on the farmer that grew with them says I didn't use them, and it's it's created a lot of fear over nothing really. And I, I saw a milk campaign with wood dairy farmers, and I saw a milk campaign that talked about how all their milk is antibiotic free, which all milk is. It's tested multiple times; it can't even leave the tank before it's tested for it. But then they said it's always cold, which no milk's allowed to go above forty degrees in storage or it's discarded and you know this is from humanely raised cows and things like that it's all the normal stuff that you're buying with regular milk all day but they put it on the label to boost their sales and it makes everybody scared of what is affordable and there's not everything is done perfect and you know obviously there's mistakes that are always made along the way but there's there's nothing wrong with alternatives you still have to find a way to try and feed everybody with the least amount of resources possible. 
and that can be tough sometimes. Well, I think the challenge here is that this misperception of GMO and misperception of organic, it translates into onco-nutrition, and maybe people don't have the right information as to what is or isn't beneficial or helpful when you are immunocompromised, you're dealing with certain, you know, um, sort of side effects of chemotherapy and cancer treatment. Uh, did you experience that? Did, did people know that you have this, this existing education about that? And you, were they, did they suggest, oh, you should only eat this now? Yeah, I mean, not nobody uh, in the actual, you know, none of the people that were, were none of the doctors or anything suggested any sort of diet, but, um, you know, other random people, of course, had all their superfoods and whatnot and uh, things to avoid. And and it it's tough sometimes to try and have a conversation with them about it. But there's, you know, there's so many things that are more important about a product than just if it has GMOs in it or if it's raised organically. Because just one thing doesn't really tell you if that farmer is necessarily better or worse, especially with animals. I mean, you can just not use GMOs or, you know, growth hormones with cows. That doesn't make you a better farmer. That doesn't mean you take better care of your cows. That just means you don't use it, and that proves nothing. The only way you ever really know is if you go to the farm and buy it, which isn't very common. But, you know, it's the thing of putting your trust. It's almost hypocritical, in my opinion, to put your trust in their label over just the normal stuff to begin with, unless you're, you can physically see where you're actually buying it. And I don't think, you know, like I said, either one of those doesn't really have to do with nutritional value of the food, which is what's important. I'm actually excited we pivoted over to this topic because it's, it's very relevant. We don't talk about it very often. And, and I don't think we've ever had a farmer on the show or fam, far, a, a survivor whose family is in the farming uh, industry. Uh, is it true that there's a difference between crossbreeding and genetically modified Yep, there's, there's a difference to that. There's crossbreeding, line breeding, and stuff, and some people call it hybridization. We've done that for years. Corn, you know, is on a cob, anything like that, didn't exist. We made it. It came from a grass and crossbreeding and hybrid uh, breeding, selective breeding, line breeding, all that stuff. Over the years, turned it into what it is. The genetic modification is when you actually go into the the true DNA of it, and you splice in genes that are not from that species to enhance it, basically. The, the hybrids and stuff like that, crossbreeding and all that, is, is uh, you know, within that species is kind of the way that, I guess, the easiest way to say it. And when you start doing the genetic modification, you're actually changing the DNA structure of it and uh, for better or worse, that's how you're doing it. And and there's a lot more GMOs out there than just the few that are used in farming. There's tons in medicine. I took some, you know, myself or and probably a lot of cancer patients with I went through stem cell transplants and stuff have taken Neupogen, which is GMO. A lot of people with uh, diabetes have used insulin, and a lot of insulin's created that way as well. So. There's you. There's a lot of people that don't look past the article on Facebook and right and just kind of take it for face value. Well, it seems like this is something that you're very passionate about. I would l- love to learn more and see how we can, you know, leverage your wisdom and work with uh, what you do know to translate that into actual fact and sort of debunk these myths that are out there. We do a lot of shows on uh, nutrition and wellness and what to eat and what to choose. And, and we get a lot of quote specialists who talk about, Oh, all you need to do is drink kale juice. And, and like that doesn't really solve anything. That pretty much, there's no miracle one food. I mean, it's really comes down to the same old tricks of a balanced diet. And, and then into the, not everything works for every person too. It's uh, and you gotta find what works best for you too. Well, what worked best for you then? What, what was your diet? Did, did your diet change at all going through this? Um, it did, actually. Uh, it's kind of ironic being a dairy farmer. I miss milk a lot. I, it didn't sit well in my stomach when I was going through all the treatments. I couldn't couldn't really drink it very much. And uh, now every, it's fine again. But um, 
that was one thing that changed was that. But to be honest, I I didn't do anything special otherwise. It it was uh, mostly the same, other than taking out things that didn't sit well in my stomach. I guess. Well, no, and that that's actually that's pretty good. <laughs> All things considered, I I'm in just as a sidebar, my I was on a liquid diet for three years after my treatment, so I couldn't eat anything. It just my treatments were. I mean, it was the '90s, so everything was like Fukushima. So I, the, the, your body kind of just shut down. But at the end of the day, uh, that's not a bad track record that you're kind of back where you were and you didn't have to really veer off the tracks too much. Mm-hmm. So I uh, we got a, uh, a minute or so left. I just wanted to go back and uh, focus on this. Uh, you know, your your actual treatment was pretty intense. The ABVD and the ice chemotherapy. Um, and you had planned for a stem cell transplant, and then uh, you didn't have to have one. No, I, I did have the stem cell. Oh, you transplant. did. Okay. Yep. So, can you just uh, briefly? Oh, yeah, autologous stem cell transplant. I remember we did a show on transplants, and we learned all the difference between autologous and all the the fancy economics of uh, of stem cell transplants. So, you are six months uh, of scans. Things look good. Some scarring from the lung from radiation. Um, I. Uh, would just love to hear you tell what's what would you tell someone else what what's your message to the next newly diagnosed young adult with uh with Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, probably to uh not get too worried about it there's always something out there that'll that'll you know help it but uh if you know i if for some reason you know your insurance doesn't cover certain things is uh, or you don't want to go through the specific treatments they have and you find something else that you'd like to try talk you know and you talk it over with your doctor don't be afraid to actually talk to the companies that make the drugs surprisingly a couple you know I, I talked to a couple after the fact and they actually do respond and want to talk to you and I remember the one talking about their financial programs they have in place for them to help pay for you to use their their products and they have it all out there. They just said that nobody ever applies for it. So if, I mean, there's a lot of people out there that want to help and, you know, do some of your own research. Don't, don't get too caught up in all the fear stuff and, and, uh, find what works for you. And, and if you can't, I mean, the support groups like stupid cancer and stuff are a great place to go. And, and if, there's nothing wrong ever with getting a second opinion too on your uh, diagnosis and stuff like that. We're all for second opinions. Uh, Vinny Andres, uh, diagnosed with stage four B Hodgkin's two weeks after his wedding, uh, coming up on what? What is your? Uh, you are a year out now, six months out. What is the actual timeline? Well, here? Uh, I finished my transplant in September, so whatever that is, uh, nine months. All right, coming up on your one year transplant anniversary. Well, thank you again for joining us on the show. Good luck to you and your wife. God bless. Thanks for having me. All right, Vinny Andres, everybody. All right, Kenny, and now the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org. Your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events. Nationwide, something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. We have two coming up, uh, one in San Diego and one in San Francisco. California's on the map. If you want to host a meetup in your local community, check out stupidcancer.org forward slash meetup. Cancer is lonely, and we've got a cure for that. We're talking about Instapeer, our new mobile app that brings instant anonymous one-to-one peer support for anyone with any cancer, including caregivers, Available for download in the uh, iTunes Store and Google Play, Instapeer. It's what's for dinner. No, that's that's pork. Sorry. It's the other app. (laughs) The other meat app. I'm I'm out of ideas. It's been a long Monday. Uh, Newsfeed aggregator. Go. Okay. We launched a newsfeed aggregator on Tumblr for all of the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to post on social media. Check out what we're eating. 24-7, 24-7, <laughs> and don't miss a beat. The train is getting derailed. <laughs> Subscribe at stupidcancer.org forward slash eat. <laughs> You're ruining the show. Cancer. 
I can't even do this. Cancer is expensive. We're proud to announce CancerMadeMeBroke.com, a national partnership with Give Forward, the number one platform to start a medical fundraiser. You didn't ask to get sick, and your community wants to help. Visit CancerMadeMeBroke.com to learn more and start your personal fundraiser today. It's always a good time to stock up on Stupid Cancer Gear. Visit stupidcancerstore.org anytime and stay nice and warm with all new products and styles to choose from. We've got an awesome skateboard. And don't forget about Flip the Cancer Bird, our latest plushie mascot. That's stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer. And that that is is yours, Stupid Stupid Cancer Cancer News. In our main segment, we're going to be welcoming Danya... Burkhoff, a uh, San Diego native, stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor. Miriam Burkhoff is uh, the COO of Donya B, a family business which was named after her daughter. She was Donya's caregiver when she was diagnosed with stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma and returning champion Kathleen Tatoon, New Orleans native, Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor, stem cell transplant survivor, been in the remission for four years. Passionate about finding health post-treatment. It's going to be a great interview here. Please welcome Donya, Miriam, and Kathleen. Ladies, how you doing? Good. How are you? Good. How are you? So, uh, Donya, Miriam, where are you guys? You're both in San Diego? Yes, we, we are. are. And uh, New Orleans. Okay, so we got a nice slice of America here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so this show is uh, sponsored by our friends at Seattle Genetics. We are focused on Hodgkin's lymphoma and their their excellence, and we, we do love them. We have a great relationship with them, and you guys are sort of, um, you know, uh, I would say uh, fruits of their labor, in a sense, of, of, of how they've done so much amazing work. Let's uh, start with Danya. Um, and just I, this is such a joke here because I always feel like everyone has stage four Hodgkins. There's never any like stage one Hodgkins. Is that is that me or does anyone everyone just have stage four Hodgkins? There's one well, I person. I can't speak for everyone, but I I have read some stuff that says that you know for young adults most most cancers are found in stage three, stage four because your bodies are otherwise healthy. And so your your body fights it for a while before the four signs often show up. So maybe that's why. Okay, <laughs> I will accept that as an answer. <laughs> so let's let's start then with, with Danya with your story. You were you were uh, you are twenty eight. How old were you when you were diagnosed? Um, I was twenty five when I was diagnosed. Um, and I found a lump on my left collarbone. That's really was the first sign. Um, you know, looking back with regards to symptoms, the only thing I could say is I had, I was just very tired. I had fatigue um, and maybe a little bit of night sweats, but nothing that would, I guess, concern me or turn up a red flag beyond, you know, just having a, a warm um, studio apartment in New York City where I was living at the time. Um, so I found a, a tumor, a small bump on my left collarbone and um, got, got that checked shortly after going home for Thanksgiving and showing it to my mom who had me rush to um, get that checked at the UCSD head and neck center. And shortly after that, I got my biopsy and I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's. And, uh, well, that must have sucked. I'm kidding. Of course it sucked. <laughs> yep. That's yeah, it statement. always sucks. <laughs> so, so let's go to um, mom uh, in that uh, I, my dad was 47 when I was diagnosed, and I know he would have just killed to know another young adult, you know, a parent of a young adult. As a caregiver and a parent, and I have five-year-olds now, so I, I have a glimpse, a very small glimpse into seeing your your child sick. Um what was it like for you? Can you can you articulate to any level that that even moderately encapsulates the the tr- the tragedy of going through this as a parent, watching your your child sick? Mm, it's very hard, I think, to explain unless you've been through it, because um, you know you'd so much rather be sick yourself than seeing your kids go through something where you you're used to as a parent to be able to solve their problems fix their problems for them, make it all better. And this one time, you are out of control. There's no thing you can do to make it all better. So it's, um, it's very hard. It's very hard to see your kids going through something that, you know, it's so hard to deal with. So all you can do is, you know, try and 
be positive for them and, you know, try to 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 say to yourself and to them everything's going to be okay they're going to get the best treatment but but yeah it's uh yeah it's it's one of your worst nightmares i think to see your kids go through it you kind of know you're going to probably see your parents get sick maybe your you know your husband or you know your partner but uh your kids you're never prepared for we do a lot of programming that's evolved over the last couple of years specifically around caregivers uh, and that includes workshops on young adult caregivers like a husband, a spouse, a brother, a best friend, and parents of young adults who's gone through this. Did you uh, – some of our sessions are on caregiver burnout and taking care of yourself, and it's so hard to be selfish when you just want to be selfless because you're you're in the throes of that. Uh, and before we get to Kathleen, would you have any comments, Miriam, on resources that you could recommend, or did you take advantage of anything – that helped you be you during this process? Well, I mostly have a very supportive family and group of friends that were really uh, 100% there for us. Um, I, I lived in San Diego when this happened, and I, Daniel lived in New York, so um, New York had the best care for her, and she was working in New York, and we were told that she would be able to keep on working during her treatment, at least part of it, and that would have been the best for her emotionally so I decided to move to New York to take care of her so it was kind of hard because my family and friends were here but they were really supportive and they kept traveling to see us and I really used that my husband and I thank God have a very good relationship and he was you know it was just us supporting each other I did use, you know, some resources that were available for for uh, caregivers in New York while we were there, and I I read a couple books that helped. So I I tried to use whatever was available. Yeah, it's it's just such an unspoken need that happens, and it's it's such a sensitive, nuanced issue to help caregivers uh, be aware of that. You know, my dad would say, "I'm no good to you unless I'm okay," and. It's it's very difficult, and, and I, we completely understand. So kudos to you for being the rock out there. Uh, Kath, Kathleen, I re-crunched the numbers. It was 121 episodes ago, but even still, that was, that was several years. And uh, it was June 25th, 2012. We're th- three years later. Tell us about how you're doing. I can't believe it's almost exactly three years. Yeah. That's crazy. Okay, so you know what? I must have... I told you I thought that I was, I remember I was talking to you on the phone in Houston the last time I was on, so I actually probably wasn't there for my transplant. I was there getting scanned because um, this is my date for when I first was in remission. Um, Yeah. You know, my first real scan after transplant. So, wow, that's kind of um, crazy. I feel like queuing up the uh, cool, cool in the gang. <laughs> it's pretty cool. I I didn't realize that. Yeah. Um, how am I doing since then? So I've been in remission um, for four years. I was in remission before my stem cell transplant, which I had in the fall of 2011. And then the one that I was just talking about would have been the scan um you know, after the transplant to make sure that it took and everything and that I was still in remission. So um, I've I've had some ups and downs since then. Um, The good thing is I've been in remission the whole time. The bad thing is I still feel like I have some side effects from all my treatments to overcome. and that's something that, you know, is kind of a daily thing still. Well, that, that goes back to the whole, you know, it can be the gift that keeps on giving and what is the consequence of cure. Do, do, have you found that people have said, but you look great, get on with your life? <laughs> yeah, I have. Um, I, definitely. I mean, that is, you know, part of it. Uh, even when I tell people I've been in remission for four years, I feel kind of funny saying that because, you know, I was taking immunosuppressant therapy until, you know, two years into that. And, you know, still, even four years out, I'm still um, 
having side effects that I think tends to be outwardly sometimes. So um, it is a gift that keeps on giving, but I'm trying, and some sometimes um, get I'm, I've improved a lot. So getting better all the time. That's what I like to say. Well, that that goes back to the uh, you know getting busy living is how you define that for yourself. So kudos for a still right. being here, which is great. But, you know, you're, you're picking and choosing your path, and, and we're just excited you're here. Well, thank you. Yes. I'm glad I'm here, too. So let me on go. On Earth and on this radio show. Agreed. podcast now. Here we are, three years later. Look at that. Who knew? Well, actually, it's I knew. Evolved. I knew. We both, we both evolved. <laughs> That's awesome. I want to go back, before we just get back to the mother and daughter. Um, so you were also stage four, because apparently everyone is stage four. Can you just talk us through yes. the symptoms you went through and if you were misdiagnosed and, and how you were able to, to possibly, if this was a thing where you, you had to fought, fight to be taken seriously? Uh, absolutely. So I was stage four B. Um, B meaning I did have a lot of those symptoms um, that are defining. I, I was misdiagnosed. So I was 24 at the time, and I was in law school. I was working pretty hard and studying, but I was also partying a lot, which is something that you do when you're in school and you're 23. Um, so I just thought that I was kind of worn out and sick from burning the candle at both ends, and I kind of got sick over the course of a semester, and I just gotten kicked off my parents' health insurance, so I was going to the student health center. And they kept telling me that I was having bronchitis or um, a sinus infection, and that it was a recurrence of the bronchitis. So at that time, my main symptom was a cough, and it just never went away, you know, over the course of six months. Um, and by the end of the semester, I was trying to get ready for exams. I was just kind of trying to get through the semester. I knew that something was wrong with me. didn't quite know what it was. Um and I was scared, of course. I, being 23, didn't think that it was cancer because I didn't know that 23-year-olds got cancer. But um, eventually, I, I didn't make it through the end of the semester. I ended up, you know, losing like 15 pounds. Weight loss is one of the one of the symptoms. Um, I got a skin rash within the last two weeks before I was diagnosed. That's another symptom. I believe I had night sweats towards the end, and then the cough was the main thing. Oh, and I did have a, a lymph node on my neck that they um, eventually biopsied. One symptom um, that I did have off and on for a while that not everyone knows about is um, pain when drinking alcohol in the areas where you have enlarged lymph nodes. Um, and I actually went to the emergency room with that once, and the doctor just kind of laughed at me and said, well, don't drink. Um so looking back on things like that and, you know, going to the student health center over the course of four times in one semester and then never ordering a chest X-ray when, you know, that seems like the obvious thing to do if, you know, there's recurring bronchitis, especially in a 23-year-old when Hodgkin's lymphoma occurs in young adult populations, looking back and thinking about those things is very frustrating to me. Um, but anyway, I ended up being finally diagnosed at the LSU Student Health Center by a nurse practitioner. She told me I had Hodgkin's disease, and I said, what's that? And she said, it's cancer. Just, oh, joy, um, it's cancer. Yay. Right. <laughs> that was in 2009. So now, Danya Mirren, you, you, you just heard Kathleen tell her story. Can I assume you were nodding on the radio with a lot of the things she was describing? Um, yes, and I actually know Kathleen pretty well, so uh, we've already... Um, we're buddies. Ah, awesome. Multiple times, so we could probably tell each other stories by now. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we had we had different experiences when it came to um, the diagnosis, for sure, because I was um, correctly diagnosed right away. But, um, you know, we both went through a stem cell transplant and we both had a lot of the same kind of issues post-cancer that a lot of times aren't talked about. So um, we actually connected through the Stupid Cancer um, event a couple years ago in Las Vegas. 
Oh, you came to the OMG Summit. We did. I'm so sorry to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) It it tends to ruin people for life in the best way possible. (laughs) We had a great time. So yeah. let me let me talk about like just to edify our our listenership. Um, what does ABVD stand for? To be honest, did you have ABVD? I don't remember. <laughs> All three. Of them. I had ABVD. I had ABVD. Um, it stands for four different chemicals that they blend into um, um, the chemotherapy, which is considered the standard regimen and first line treatment for Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, I believe it replaced an older kind of protocol, and that's kind of the new standard. Um, and it's given it's given in cycles um, depending on what stage you are. When I was diagnosed, I was um, supposed to have ABVD for six months, which is kind of the standard protocol if you're in stage four. Um, and at Memorial Sloan Kettering, where I was treated, they do the scan to see if you're reacting. Um, you know, positively to the treatment about four months in. So I received that every, um, how often was it, Mom? I don't remember. <laughs> every couple of weeks? One. Every other, other week. Yeah. Uh, the every other week. Every other yeah. week. Every other week um, I was given that, an infusion of that for three hours. It was outpatient. I'd go into the Memorial Stone Kettering Center. They'd give me a DVD and then I'd have some some rest time, and, and then in two weeks, I would go for my next treatment. Um, so I got, you know, eight cycles of that, so, you know, four months' worth of treatment um, on that. Um, and that treatment sucked um, because, A, for me, it didn't work, um, which was very frustrating because you, I was feeling very sick for four months, was extremely nauseous had a lot of digestive issues with like constipation, a lot of energy problems. I had hair loss. And then, you know, I had it done for four months. And then I, I heard, um, you know, that that standard treatment that works on 80 to 85% of cancer patients for Hutchkins wasn't working on me. So that was really depressing because A, I had already spent all this time feeling sick off of treatment that didn't work. And B, you know, I just didn't know what my options were. I was scared that, you know, if the standard treatment that works for everyone doesn't work on me, that nothing else would work on me. Um, and at that point, it was decided that I would need a lot more aggressive of a regimen. Um, and I was given the option of doing a clinical trial where I would get frintuximab, which is known with the brand name Etcetris. Etcetris, yes. Um, yeah, for two months prior to getting an autologous stem cell transplant. Um, so that was kind of a, a turning point for me in the sense that, you know, it was known that my cancer was more aggressive, that I would need a stem cell transplant, which obviously has a lot more side effects and more implications on a long-term basis, um, and that, you know, I need more aggressive treatment um, leading up to my stem cell transplant as well. So it sounds like Etcetris was the almost like a miracle for you that it showed up when it did and it worked for you and it got you through the process. Yeah, it such as um put me into uh you know what they call a temporary remission within um within two months. It was administered as a thirty minute infusion once a week for three weeks and then you would get one rest week and then another three weeks once a week and then a rest week. Um, but it was amazing. I, I, I had very few side effects on that. I did have a lot of fatigue, but it was kind of unknown whether the fatigue was a combination of, you know, treatment of ABVD for four months compiled with, with Etcetris or, um, or if it was, you know, the actual drug. The only, um, you know, side effect that I had was a skin rash on the palm of my hand um, that looked like little bug bites, and I got a, a shot of cortisone at the dermatologist's office and that kind of took care of it but I had minimal hair loss with etcetris I felt a lot more energized than I did on ADVD which was ironic because I went on medical leave right when I started etcetris and I felt so much better on etcetris than I did um, with ADVD treatment Um, and you know the most important thing is it put me into into a remission, which, you know, being in remission prior to an autologous stem cell transplant has, um, you know, higher probability of long-term 
survival. So that was um, an encouraging step in the right direction. So it was it was a great drug for me. I hope that one day you don't need to get the stem cell transplant if you just get cetrus and that they can move that up to line of treatment where that is the first thing you get instead of ABVD. And we just went to Dr. Google and have our answer. ABVD, it stands for adriamycin, bleomycin, vinblastin sulfate. That sounds fantastic. And decarbazine. There you go. Gesundheit. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you block a lot of that out. <laughs> what all the drugs stand for. They get all confused. <laughs> so let me go. Uh, we can Actually, this will be for Danya and Kathleen. In terms of your, your journey, which is, um, I, I didn't realize that you guys are like uh, besties and you know each other's story. That's fantastic. And, and that, uh, you know, we need more sort of young adult teams out there representing why we're different and why we're unique and, and why it matters that we're not 80 years old. But uh, in terms of like the challenging parts of the post, you know, like I joked before, like, you know, well, you're done. Get on with your life. What, what has been, I'll start with Danya, what's been the hardest part for you? Or has there been, if they, you can even name a hardest part for you to, yeah. what, what is this new normal and a phrase we hate to use in general, but what is that for you? Yeah. Um, well, I think there's a couple of, of things that were really hard for me post-cancer. Um, and as I've met other, you know, cancer survivors, it seems that it's pretty common. But um, I got really, really depressed after my treatment. And I think that I wasn't able to almost like digest mentally and emotionally what was, what I was going through when I was in treatment. I was on, I was, I was almost described myself as numb looking back. I was just doing whatever the doctors told me to do and kind of putting myself in autopilot and just doing what I needed to do to manage my physical symptoms and surrounding myself with friends and distractions and family to kind of help pass the time um, and kind of keep myself positive um, that everything would be okay. And once I was finished with treatment, I think that's when a lot of the mental and emotional kind of challenges hit. Um, so, so that I would say that that was a big one. Um, and, you know, when you're finally done taking pills and with treatment, the last thing you want to do is take another pill. Right. And I remember talking to my oncologist, you know, you know, a couple of months after treatment and saying, you know, I don't want an antidepressant. I don't want to take more pills. Um, but I was feeling very, like, desperate um, in terms of, like, having still a lot of anxiety, um, one of the things that I talked with Kathleen early on when we met um, at the cancer, um, I guess now it's called CancerCon, but the Stupid Cancer Conference, is, you know, one of the hard things is that the side effects of the stem cell transplant are very similar to the symptoms of Hodgkin's itself. So um, fatigue was a huge, huge issue. Um, after the stem cell transplant, they tell you, you know, it can take 18 months to up to two years to feel like your energy levels are back. Um, and I think that was very frustrating because I wanted to kind of get back with my life. I've always been a very active, you know, athlete and very active in my social circle and with my friends and um, kind of high energy. So it was frustrating to feel tired all the time. And the fatigue was a trigger for me emotionally also, you know, because if I felt fatigued, it would remind me of me being sick from cancer with all the treatment or it would make me think that my cancer was back and that I'm tired and that's why uh, and that I'm going to relapse. Um, so I think kind of just getting used to telling telling myself in my own mind that, you know, just because I was tired didn't mean my cancer was back. Um, that, right. was, that was a challenging thing also, like all the depression and anxiety that came after it, um, especially tied to the energy level. Um, I mean, I think my... My oncologist said that it could take up to two years to, um, you know, to recuperate my energy. I don't think I fully believed her. Um, I was very, very tired after my stem cell transplant. Um, I think the first couple of months, my mom probably remembers better than I do. I was sleeping like 12 hours, um, you know, a night. I don't know if part of that was depression, um, but I was, you know, if I was doing any sort of physical activity, I'd have to take like a two-hour nap after it took my body you know, multiple days to bounce back from any sort of physical activity. Um, so, so that was really, really challenging. Um, kind of figuring out where I wanted to be um, location-wise and with my career was challenging because, 
you know, while I was on medical leave, there was some management changes at my company. I now wanted to be closer to family. So I ended up um, deciding to relocate from New York City to San Diego to be closer to family. And I now work for a consulting company where I work from home and I don't travel as much. Um, and so I did make some changes in the career space to enable me to have, um, you know, a job. I used to do event planning where I wasn't traveling so much and that required as much energy. Um, so I would say those things were hard. A couple others that come to mind. Um, I think dating after cancer is really tough. Um, and I know that you know, like Memorial Stone Kettering um, has, you know, some support groups for that. And I know that at the Stupid Cancer Conference, there's some sessions on that. But I think um, that's a kind of a tough, a tough one as well. Um, you know, image is a, is a big thing. And, you know, you don't feel like yourself because your energy is not back and your hair is not back. Um, you might have some scars. So that was another kind of challenging thing. And then, um, you know, there was, there was some hormonal imbalances, I think, that um, I dealt with, um, you know, low estrogen and such from the treatment post-transplant that was also contributing to my energy level. And that took a couple months to kind of figure out. Um, and so that was another, another area that was, that was challenging. So that's my, that's my bucket of post-cancer. Um, but now I'm doing great, so it's not all bad. But those were the, I think, the challenges in the first couple of years right out of treatment. Right, and and Kathleen, uh, before we you, we get your answer, you are um, you were I mean, certified holistic health coach. You do yoga, traveling. Did that help you get through all of this, or was were you were you just so fatigued you couldn't even think straight? That didn't exist during my treatment. Right, <laughs> that all happened afterwards um post-treatment depression you know has been a part of my life and I've turned to all those things after treatment to you know figure it all out um I do identify with what Danya said you know you are just kind of on autopilot and listening to the doctors and everything's an emergency and has to be done this way and um I do feel like I wasn't super present during all of that and I kind of just like, I know at the beginning I pretended like it wasn't happening. Um, so, you know, I, I, it was my first treatment. You know, there was a 90% cure rate, and it was the easiest kind of cancer. And I just thought, oh, I can do this and, you know, still be myself. And um, I was wrong. So I think as I went on, I tried to, um, you know, incorporate more of that and, you know, learn as much as I could. But most of it happened after treatment when all these side effects, my, my bad side effects, the chronic ones showed up after treatment. So that's when I really started trying to educate myself more and seek out, uh, you know, friends and resources in, in the young adult community. All right, final question to our, our three guests. Uh, feel free to answer as, as you please. Is there or could there have been anything that you could have or would have or should have done differently in retrospect? And is that even a fair question? Let's start with Miriam. Oh, wow. Um, well, um, the only thing maybe um, I think sometimes, um, at least when this nightmare all started, um, we tend to go online and look for a lot of information. I think that's that's not helpful. I think that's one thing um, you learn throughout uh, and while you're in treatment and you're in good hands that there's a lot of misinformation out there and a lot of information that's not going to really relate to you or to your case and you end up going absolutely crazy with everything you read. So. Just seeking out too much information online, I think, is something I would do differently. I would just, you know, you just have to find a doctor, even if you have to go to several opinions. By the time you decide who's going to treat you, you have to trust them and stop getting information otherwise. Um, I think that's one thing I would change. So no Dr. Google. That's your advice. Exactly. <laughs> no. All right. Danya. Um, I think the one, the one thing for me is I probably would have gone to the doctor sooner. Um, you know, I, I had a feeling like something in my body was off. 
Um, I was like losing my breath during yoga a little bit more, you know, more quickly. I was like too tired to go out, which is very unusual for me. Um, and so I think I, I could have gone to the doctor sooner, even though I, I got my lump checked within probably a month or six weeks of it showing up on my neck. Um, that would be my one, um, my, my one regret, um, is just to, to go to the doctor sooner. Um, I think, um, having a good, you know, therapist or psychologist or someone you can talk to objectively is important. Um, I think that's been really helpful for me post-cancer to have somebody to navigate some of the post-cancer issues with. I did have a therapist I worked with throughout treatment and looking back, I don't think that she was the right fit for me, um, and for kind of dealing with what I was dealing with. Um, so... Um, those were those are kind of two things that um, I, w- I wish I would have done differently. Um, and um, yeah, I, I think those those are the two main things. Yeah, take your know your body, take yourself seriously. Don't don't accept mm-hmm. no for an answer. That kind of stuff. I, I, exactly. Yeah, on par. and I think the other thing I think um, is just you know I think a lot of times. People don't give you permission to be sad or scared because everybody around you is sad or scared, um, and everybody's just hoping and wishing that um, that everything's okay <laughs> and that everything will be okay. And people try to cheer you up, and I and I feel like sometimes um, it made me feel a little bit more isolated um, than supported because um, you know, even though everybody's scared with you. Um, everybody's trying to kind of lift you up. So I think giving other people around me permission to be sad and scared with me, I think might have made me, made me feel a little bit less alone. Um, I think in particular with friends, you know, you would get a lot of people saying, oh, I just know everything's going to be fine. And it's like, do you not understand what's happening right now? <laughs> so um, I, I think that's, that's another one. Um, and then, one thing I can say, I guess, that helped is um, that one of my friends who's a cancer survivor told me early on is to kind of accept help from other people. Um, and a lot of people say that they want to be with, be there for you, just tell them what to do. But you don't really know how to guide other people to be there for you because you're kind of trying to navigate the experience yourself. You've never gone through cancer before. How do you know what's going to help you? So once I was able to um, figure out a couple of tangible things, that I could communicate to my friends and family that would be helpful for them, you know, to support me. For example, them planning. I couldn't, um, I'm the social organizer within my group of friends, you know, them planning so that I didn't have to get the energy to plan but wanted a distraction or a night out. Um, things like that. Once you navigate what's helpful, communicating that back out to friends and family, um, again, so that you can they can support you in, in a way that's helpful for you. I think, um, I think I would have maybe done a little bit more of that, but again, I was trying to figure it out myself. So Kathleen, final word. Um, like I said earlier, I would have been more engaged in the process and less on autopilot. Probably wanted to talk more at the beginning to my doctors about my, um, you know, risk for reoccurrence, which was never brought up at the beginning, even though I was really high for it would have liked to, my doctor just kind of glazed over the fertility thing and said there wasn't enough time. And again, I said, okay, I'm going to die if I don't do it. You know, um, it would have been, I, I wish that I hadn't have done that. <laughs> um, the other thing that comes to mind, I totally identify with what Miriam said about not, you know, going to the internet and, you know, Google Doc and all of that. But I do think that there's value in finding the right community online, not necessarily to, and I, I, I didn't do that. I didn't do that till after. You know, I didn't have any young adult cancer survivor friends during treatment. It wasn't really until really late into it or after. So I think that if you can, you know, go online and find that group or those support groups or whatever resources you need without you know, the mindset of comparing, that's valuable, but it's hard. And the last thing I will say is that I wish I would have been better to my caregivers. 
um, nicer to my parents. I had a tendency to be very grumpy with them. And also just, I think that defining the caregiver role is really important. You know, when I was living away for six weeks, it was kind of like, oh, everybody wants to take their turn for two days to come stay with you and help you, you know, but that doesn't help when you need, you know, someone living with you for six months. So, I mean, my dad, um, you know, left his home for six months to come live with me in a tiny apartment when I was really, really grumpy. <laughs> so I'm, I'm um, very grateful to him for that, and I wish I would have been nicer to him. Well, I appreciate your, your, that is very raw, very honest, and very true. Ladies, I thank you so much for joining us on the show. Danya Burkoff, a young adult, stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor, her mother, Miriam Burkoff, thank you for being amazing. And returning champion Kathleen Satoon celebrating uh, her three years stupid cancer show anniversary. Uh, ladies, <laughs> good luck. God bless. Take Definitely care. It's almost to the date. Exactly. Take care, ladies. Bye bye. Thank, thank you. you. All right, Kenny, it is now time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. The 352nd episode of the Stupid Cancer Show. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. We'd like to thank our guests, Vinny Endress, Kathleen Satoon, Danya, and Miriam Burakoff. This show was proudly sponsored by our friends at Seattle Genetics. And we thank them very much for their generosity and philanthropy. The Stupid Cancer Show was a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer online at stupidcancer.org. If you haven't already, visit stupidcancershow.org and never miss an episode by signing up for our newsletter and subscribing to the free podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Coming to you for the chemo deck. And on behalf of myself, Kenny Kane, Mallory Rivera, Sean Shapiro, Noel Wimmer, thanks for listening. And we'll see you on the next broadcast of the Stupid Cancer Show. 